It's time for Valley Writers Read, a production of Valley Public Radio featuring the talents of writers from Central California. Here's the host of our program, Franz Weinschenk. Good evening, friends. Welcome to Valley Writers Read, where all the stories you hear originate from right here in the San Joaquin Valley. Tonight, a story by a longtime friend of ours, Fresnan Jim Ashford, who'll be reading a story of his entitled Ridge Runner. It's about the author's lifelong ambition to get a ride in a P-51 Mustang, the legendary Air Force World War II fighter plane. Ridge Runner. When I was a little boy in Sanger, a short, skinny boy with bad teeth, big ears, and plain-looking, that's how I thought of myself, with acne soon to come, the kind of boy made for the abuse of bullies, all I wanted was to be a fighter pilot. My fantasy was to be old enough and able enough to run out from a briefing hut, jump up onto the aluminum wing, swing smartly into a cockpit, me resplendent in full flying gear, sheepskin boots, gloves, leather jacket, a white silk scarf wrapped around my neck, an oxygen mask and a leather helmet. I'd be strapped in by my crew chief, give a thumbs up and a salute to him and to my ground crew, hear the starter whine and then the ignition of a P-51D Mustang's engine and watch the propeller turn and catch smell the oily exhaust blasting into the cockpit, warm up the fighter for a minute or two, and then crank the canopy forward, advance the throttle, taxi out to the end of the runway, in a line of other Mustangs, my fellow pilots and their fighters, all of us facing deadly odds, and, two at a time, take flight against the German Luftwaffe. Note, a propeller, a Mustang, and the Luftwaffe. This was back in the 1940s, you see, before there were jets with onboard computers and heat-seeking missiles and all the other wizard stuff that now enhances and makes aerial warfare more precise and deadly and, frankly, impersonal. That is, a fighter pilot today might never even see the enemy. 
My boy's fantasy was born of an era when fighter planes had propellers and pilots wore white silk scarves and when our nation was united in resolve against a truly evil enemy in a war that would define civilization. I know, I know. It's not fashionable nowadays to speak of war, let alone to glamorize war. I can imagine as I speak concerned moms out there wincing at my political incorrectness, covering little Kimberly or Jason's ears so that they won't be abused or informed about the war. For them, I have one word, Nazis. Anyway, back in my boyhood, I'd stand in my backyard in Sanger and watch fighters pass over on the approach to what was then Hammer Field, the Army Air Force Base in Fresno, that in our time ended up being Fresno Yosemite International Airport. And in those days I built, not very well, balsa wood models of World War II fighter planes. My bedroom reeked of Tester's model airplane glue and paint in a color called olive drab that came in little bottles that were literally called dope. You heard that, right? Oh, Lord, all that model airplane glue and paint and all the toxins within. You probably need permission from the Consumer Product Safety Commission today to buy that stuff, if it's even still made. Given what we know today about the physiological and addictive effects of breathing fumes from all that glue and paint, I was probably lucky to make it to adulthood, to a life, to something beyond the kind of poor guy you see at the freeway exit with the sign that begs for help. On the other hand, I do recall that I always felt somewhat euphoric after a long session building my model airplanes. I can hear my mother calling, Jimmy, it's time to come to dinner. Sure, Mom. <sighs> just, just as soon as I finish this mm, wing. Well, that's another story. Heaven knows how many model aircraft builders in those times, unknowing victims and slaves of Tester's glue and paint, have survived, brains intact. Well, at least I can remember it all, I, I think. In the meantime, here's the story of my psychological addiction to fighter planes. I palled around with an older cousin down the street there in Sanger, Another Jimmy, last name Schmidt, who was just as crazy about fighter planes as I. But he was an expert modeler who could make his creations look just right, just the way they would look if they were the actual planes, somehow made small. And some of his creations would fly. They'd leap into the air, pulled by noisy miniature glow plug engines. Those were heady days on the local school ground, watching Jimmy's handiwork take to the air, fly, and, I imagined, fight. He and I made model Spitfires and Hurricanes, the backbone of the Royal Air Force in the Battle of Britain, and we made U.S. Navy Wildcats and Hellcats and Marine Corsairs and Army Air Force Thunderbolts and Warhawks. But of all those iconic fighters of that era, there was only one that really, really rang my gong. The P-51D Mustang, 
designed and built by the North American Aviation Company. The hottest, for my mind the best looking, and undeniably the best fighter plane of that war. The P-51D, the D version, was the dominant and most numerous production version of the P-51 series, looked fast and flew fast, and depending on your outlook, say if you were a Luftwaffe pilot encountering one over Germany, it looked damned well dangerous, a killing machine. But it was also a beautiful, graceful plane, an aircraft that proved the pilot's maxim that if a plane looks good, it flies good. She was a beauty, in profile a long, graceful nose and cowling, one-piece teardrop cockpit canopy, square-topped rudder and a distinctive radiator air scoop under the fuselage. The P-51D was 32 feet long, with a wingspan of 37 feet. She stood almost 14 feet high and weighed in at six tons. She was powered by a Packard-built Rolls-Royce designed engine nicknamed the Merlin, a V-12-cylinder monster that developed about 1,700 horsepower. To put that in present-day automotive terms, the Mustang was pulled along by the horsepower equivalent of four-and-a-quarter Chevy Corvettes. She could fly 400 miles an hour at 5,000 feet and climb almost 4,000 feet a minute. And she could fly almost 1,000 miles at maximum cruise power at 25,000 feet. And with maximum fuel load in those wartime days, could cover almost 1,700 miles at the same altitude. The Mustang was designed in just five months. And it was the first Allied fighter plane that could escort bombers from England to the heart of Germany, fight off the Luftwaffe, and return with the bombers to England. Reichsmarschall Hermann Göring, the Nazi head of the Luftwaffe, said that when he first saw Mustangs over Berlin, he knew that the air war with the Allies was lost. He was right. The Mustangs saw service all over the globe during World War II. In Steven Spielberg's 1987 film Empire of the Sun, a British boy, another Jim, there are so many, a boy not yet 12 years old is separated from his parents and becomes a civilian prisoner of the Japanese in China at the beginning of World War II. He has a little boy's obsession with military fighter planes. He and other British and American civilians are forced to build an airfield for the Japanese, adjacent to the prison camp. Three years into his imprisonment, Jim witnesses a raid on the airfield by U.S. Army Air Force P-51 Mustangs. He races back and forth on the roof of a building in the camp, watching as the Mustangs strafe and bomb the Japanese airfield. And then, as in a dream, he watches as one Mustang passes close by, the pilot waving to him. Jim begins jumping up and down, screaming, Horsepower! Horsepower! P-51 Mustang! Cadillac of the skies! The camp doctor rushes to the boy's side. The boy is screaming, 
I touched them. I touched them. I felt their heat. I can taste them in my mouth. The doctor rests the boy to the roof as the raid continues, shakes the boy's shoulders, and shouts, Jim, try not to think so much. When I first saw that sequence, I felt my heart drop into my stomach. The boy from Sanger identified with that other boy, that other Jim. P-51 Mustang, horsepower, Cadillac of the skies. But, well, I'd never touched one, felt its heat, tasted it in my mouth. As I grew from the Mustang-obsessed child to my teens and gradually acquired conventional wisdom, I knew that in my life I would never, ever pilot a Mustang and could never be a fighter pilot. Time and the era of the military Mustang had passed me by. And anyway, even if I'd been old enough to fly in that honorable battle or after, the truth was I needed glasses to find my hand in front of my face. And I had a lazy eye condition that gives me double vision when looking to the left. And I sneeze when suddenly moving from diminished light to bright sunlight, which is a condition afflicting up to 25% of everyone in the world, including guys who want to fly Mustangs. And these are all things that will disqualify you from becoming a fighter pilot. By the way, I'll bet you didn't know that last part, the sunlight and sneezing. The sneeze reaction to sudden bright sunlight is a medical condition called autosomal dominant compelling helioophthalmic outburst syndrome, known by the acronym ACHU. I am not making this up. It's genetic. And if you're one of those 25% folks like me, you can finally feel relieved that you're not alone in the world. But you'll never pilot a fighter plane. You see, when you sneeze, you momentarily close your eyes, whether you realize it or not, and you expel a certain amount of sneeze stuff from nose and or mouth. Well, you can understand. It's not a good idea to be a couple of miles up, come out of a dark cloud to bright sunlight, and close your eyes and sneeze into an oxygen mask when you're pursuing or being pursued by another fighter plane. Anyway, as World War II receded into memory and legend, the Mustangs became practically extinct. Jet planes and their pilots took over the province of what Tom Wolfe calls so appropriately the right stuff. Jet fighters are pretty slick, I'll admit, and I flirted with them as objects of a boy's aviation fantasies. And I'll admit that I always look up, always, always, when I hear an F-16 fighter jet climbing out of the National Guard base at Fresno, Yosemite. But, well, for my mind, those jets are just not as sexy as the P-51D. So, since I couldn't become a fighter pilot, I decided to become a lawyer, a slightly less dangerous person, but still someone you'd want to watch if they were following close behind you. And I modified my youth's fantasy. If I couldn't fly a Mustang, couldn't I at least ride in one? During the 1970s and 1980s, I went to air shows. I saw P-51s fly. In those days, you might catch a ride in a Mustang that had been modified to carry a passenger behind the pilot 
provided you had some ready cash. Those pilots didn't take plastic. Friends of mine with bucks actually got backseat rides. I fumed in the fumes from the exhaust as they taxied out, waving to me from inside the canopy of the planes. I watched the P-51s pass by. I sort of felt their heat. I sort of tasted them in my mouth. But I still was literally grounded. Listen, to my shame, it got this bad. At one air show up in Madeira, a concessionaire showed up pulling a small open-framed auto trailer on which sat some cobbled-together aluminum and glass construct that very close up and from a certain angle more or less looked like the open cockpit of a generic World War II fighter plane. The concessionaire had a Polaroid camera and a bunch of war surplus flight gear. And for five bucks, you could slip on a leather helmet, white silk scarf, leather flight jacket, and an oxygen mask, all appropriate to the historical period, then scrunch down under the trailer and stand up in the contraption with just your costumed upper body exposed and enclosed by the mock-up, making it look as if you were sitting in a real cockpit. The whole setup was cleverly oriented so that you had to face into the sun, forcing an appropriate fighter pilot's squint. What can I say? I paid the five bucks and stood there in my cargo shorts and sandals and faux fighter pilot upper garb and squinted. Hold it. Click. There you are, ace. That photograph, lovingly framed, hung in my office for 20 years. Sometimes very young staff persons would look at it and ask in wonder, Is that you? or, if they were a bit more aware of actual time, space, and history, would ask, is that your father? I'd mumble something about a gag shot and pretend to be busy with a legal brief, but I never took the picture down. And now, dear listener, this is where, if this was a 1940s Warner Brothers movie, we would cut to a shot of calendar pages flashing by. On the occasion of my 65th birthday, my wife and our respective daughters and their husbands made arrangements for me to fly in a Mustang. The plane my wife had found after a long search on the Internet was hangered only a hundred miles or so up the road from Fresno. I was ecstatic. All I had to do now was get in touch with the pilot and set a date and time. But... Subsequent attempts to actually schedule a flight were unproductive. When called, and when he'd actually pick up the phone, the pilot would mumble something about his Mustang being in the shop, or later that it did not fly right now, and so forth. Eventually, after many calls and emails, the excuses turned into an admission that the pilot just wasn't going to give rides anymore. Ha! How could anyone do this to an old, obsessed man? I wouldn't give up. I looked through the Internet myself for other possibilities. A couple of pilots in the Australian outback offered rides in P-51s. Australia! Crikey! Even obsession has its limits. 
I grumped and brooded, staring at that silly picture of me in the scarf and helmet and figuring that time had finally really passed me by. Then, more than a year later, I went for a haircut at the Townsman Barber Shop out on West Shaw. The barbers are military aviation enthusiasts, and the place is hung with all kinds of model airplanes and pictures of airplanes, including not a few P-51s. As you can guess, it's my kind of place. I was complaining of my misfortune to my barber, Richard Bain, himself a civil aviation pilot. Hey, he said, putting down his scissors, why don't you call Dan Martin at the airport in Hollister? He's got a P-51D, and he's given a ride along to a friend of mine. Maybe he can help you out. I was blinded by the light. Maybe I'd hit the jackpot. Dan Martin surely does have a P-51D. It's a meticulously restored and maintained Mustang that was originally born and delivered to the Army Air Forces on January 23, 1945, at the North American Aviation Plant down in Englewood, California. She's a for-sure warrior that served in the last months of the war in Europe with the 9th Air Force. After the war, she was sold to the Swedish Air Force, then to the Nicaraguan Air Force, and eventually she ended up in El Salvador as a combatant in the so-called Soccer War of 1969 between that country and Honduras. In 1974, Dan brought her back from El Salvador in crates, restored the plane to flying condition, and named it Ridge Runner III. More on that the third later. Dan Martin is not just a weekend gentleman pilot. He's flown the plane in the Reno air races. He's flown it in movies like the Tuskegee Airmen. It turns out that Dan Martin is something of a go-to guy for Mustang restoration and flying. And his Mustang is modified to provide a back seat. When could we fly? I asked the first time I got him on the line. Hey, it's good weather today, he said. Wow. We checked later dates and agreed to fly on a Saturday at the end of February. On that glorious morning, I had a light breakfast of oatmeal and a half cup of coffee. Not good to put too much on the stomach, I thought. And we drove to Hollister. The kids came down, too. The day was gloriously sunny, few clouds, and the valley and hills were bright green with the first growth of spring. At the Hollister Airport, we asked directions for Dan Martin's hangar and slowly drove through the alleys and taxiways and turned a corner, and there was the Ridge Runner herself rolling toward us down the taxiway, being towed out for fueling, her red propeller spinner toward us, her graceful wing shifting from side to side. 
There was no pilot in the cockpit. She seemed to be galloping, eager to be airborne. We backed up to give her room. She glided by. I had died and gone to heaven. A North American aviation P-51D, whatever she may look like today, is still a Mustang, of course. But the glory of that airplane, after all, is its military heritage. A few of the Mustangs flying today are tricked out in custom paint jobs that have no relevance to their service origins and look like NASCAR hot rods, so covered with sponsorship names that you can barely discern their shape. These are the birds that sadly reflect corporate sponsorship. One is painted all red and promotes the use of chewing tobacco. Another I know of up in Vacaville is covered with garish promotion for jelly belly candy. Jelly beans, for God's sake. Even President Reagan would have been appalled. It's like putting a Ronald McDonald red nose on the presidents on Mount Rushmore. Ah, the shame, the shame. Dan Martin's Mustang, however, is named, painted, and trimmed in tribute to a P-51D once flown over Europe in World War II by a remarkable man, Major Pierce W. McKinnon. And the story of Major McKinnon is worth more than a mention here. He was born on November 30, 1919. He was an Arkansas boy who, after the war started in 1939, when he was 20, gave up a four-year college musical scholarship to fly against the Nazis. He tried the Army Air Force first, but washed out of flight school uh, because, while he had 20-20 vision and evidently did not sneeze in bright sunlight, he tended to become airsick. Obviously, not an optimum characteristic for a fighter pilot. But the man had to fly and to fight. So he went to Canada and joined the Royal Canadian Air Force and, having put his stomach in order, finally shipped out to England, where he flew Spitfires for the Canadians. When America entered the war, he transferred to the U.S. Army Air Force. And by the end of the war, he was a quadruple ace with more than 20 combat victories who eventually commanded the fabled 4th Division of the 8th Air Force's fighter wing. Pierce McKinnon was six feet one, tall for a fighter pilot. His head almost bumped against the top of the Mustang's canopy. And he was an almost obscenely handsome man. Wavy, dark hair, strong, dimpled jaw, steely eyes, a wry smile. He could have come from Hollywood Central Casting. In fact, he looked something like the present-day actor Ben Affleck. But when I showed a picture of McKinnon to a friend, herself a pilot and a top-flight reporter for the Washington Post on the NASA space shuttle program, she said, and I quote, Ben Affleck should live so long. That photo of McKinnon actually made me drool. And with all his handsomeness and evident coolness, to those who knew him, he was likable 
the kind of man you'd want to know, whether you were female or male, a kind of Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart of the air. He flew with skill and panache. He was a great fighter pilot. He did it all, and hearkening back to his youthful talents, could play a piano as well as he flew. As to that latter gift, Pierce McKinnon had a wry sense of humor. Here is what one of his squadron mates, Lieutenant Bob Werman, wrote about him. Mac had the greatest way of dealing with pre-mission jitters, not just for himself, for everybody. You could always tell who was set for a mission that day. They got fresh eggs and bacon. A lot of us, we'd be so worried or scared we couldn't eat. Not Mac. He ate like a horse, and he'd eat yours if you were going to leave it. When he was through, he'd get up and go over to this old piano in the corner of the mess. He'd turn and look at each of us, and then say, For those about to die, I salute you. Then he'd sit down and play slowly and reverently the old rugged cross all the way through. When he got done, he'd launch into the most outrageous boogie-woogie version of that same song you ever heard, and he never did it the same way twice. You couldn't sit there in a funk while that was going on. When he was through, everybody was raring to go. Mac loved boogie-woogie more than anything. He could play Tiger Rag on the piano in the officer's club with a full pint of bitters clenched in his teeth, drain the glass, and not miss a note. Some guy, right? He named his Mustangs with Arkansas pride. Note the plural. His first was Ridge Runner its nose emblazoned with the raging Ozark razorback boar chasing Nazi swastikas that represented his aerial and strafing victories. He was shot down in that plane, parachuted safely, escaped capture by the Germans, was taken in by French resistance fighters, and eventually moved on through the underground to Spain and then rejoined his fighter group in Britain. He was shot down a second time, Flying Ridge Runner the second, similarly decked out with the charging Arkansas hog, on March eighteenth, nineteen forty-five. And listeners, this is a story you won't believe. It's right out of Hollywood. McKinnon parachuted into a German meadow. One of his squadron's pilots, Lieutenant George Green, followed him down, watched him land safely, and then observing trucks of German troops. Approaching to take McKinnon prisoner, or, or worse, announced over the radio to the squadron that, contrary to standing orders, he was going to land and pick McKinnon up. While the rest of the squadron orbited above, the pilots shouting encouragement over their radios, and some of them strafing the approaching Germans, Green landed his Mustang in the field as McKinnon watched in disbelief. In its military configuration, the Mustang was strictly a one-person airplane, no back seat. Green threw out his parachute and anything else that was loose in the cockpit, and McKinnon climbed into Green's Mustang and sat in the pilot's seat. Green sat on McKinnon's lap and turned the Mustang into the wind and took off for England, clipping the treetops as they climbed out. At one point, because of cloud buildup, Green had to take the Mustang over 10,000 feet, and he realized that McKinnon had passed out from lack of oxygen. Green clamped his own oxygen mask on McKinnon, and from that point, they switched the mask back and forth, exchanging whiffs 
to keep them both conscious. When Green reached the Dutch coast, his Mustang pretty much running on fumes, he pushed the throttle to the wall, figuring that if he ran out of fuel, he might glide to their base. McKinnon, all this time, kept pounding on his buddy's back and calling him a crazy bastard. They made it back to their base in England, to the astonishment of all their squadron mates. And then McKinnon mounted a new Mustang, named it and painted it up as Ridge Runner III, with that perhaps now weary Ozark hog accompanied by two small parachute canopies standing for his two escapes. Do you want the ending? Pierce McKinnon stayed in the Air Force after the war. He married his sweetheart, and there was a baby on the way. On June 18, 1947, he and a student pilot crashed near San Antonio, Texas. McKinnon was sitting behind the student, there's irony here, and died instantly. He was 27 years old. As the novelist James Mishner wrote in another context about fighter pilots, where do we get such men? So there we were at the Hollister Airport, and there was Ridge Runner III being dragged toward us by a small donkey tractor driven by Dan Martin. We respectfully backed up to give the plane room to pass, drove on to park by the hangar, and I jumped out of the car to walk back to meet my pilot, who was now carefully filling the wing tanks with high-octane aviation gasoline. I noted a bumper sticker on the tractor, Honk if Democrats suck, and knew that I was truly in the land of the fighter pilots. While Dan was further pre-flighting the Mustang, a car rushed up to the hangar, a couple, an aged man and his daughter had been driving by on San Felipe Road, adjacent to the airport, and had seen the plane. The man had been a crew mechanic for P-51s in the 9th Air Force in Africa, and there was suddenly much talk between Dan Martin and the man about the airplane and its maintenance. Photos were taken to be mailed later to the old gentleman. It put a nice touch on the morning. Then... Time to fly. Ridge Runner is obviously configured for tandem flight. The bulky vacuum-tubed wartime radio gear that used to sit behind the pilot has been replaced by smaller solid-state equipment, so there's room for a back seat. The pilot wouldn't have to sit on my lap. Dan instructed me how to mount the airplane. Step with the right foot on the starboard tire, left foot on the wheel brace, step onto the wing and walk carefully to the cockpit, avoiding the very bendable aluminum fairing between the wing and fuselage. Put the right hand on the right canopy slide, left hand on the back of the pilot seat, left foot into the back seat, scoot into the cockpit, sit down, strap on the seatbelt and shoulder harness. Headphones for communication with the pilot were put on. Microphone adjusted, and we were good to go. Dan slipped into the front seat. Cockpit canopy open, he fired up the Merlin. An ungodly amount of oily smoke came back into the cockpit from the six unmuffled exhausts on each side of the nose. And then everything cleared in the draft from the big four-blade propeller, and we taxied slowly out to the edge of the runway, me waving to the family. 
For a couple of minutes, Dan just warmed up the engine. And then we moved out onto the end of the runway, and he cranked shut the canopy and hit the throttle, and we flew. You know how when a passenger jet accelerates on takeoff, you're pressed back into your seat a bit? It's about three times that feeling when the P-51 begins to roll. We couldn't have been halfway down the runway when Dan pulled the stick back, retracted the wheels, dipped the wing to port, and we headed toward the coast over the fields outside Hollister. We swung over and along the slopes of the hills, topping the crests, getting the attention of the occasional cow. The Mustang makes a mighty roar. I assumed that there would be no extreme aerobatics, no loops or Immelman turns or the like, although the Mustang is perfectly capable of those and anything else you can imagine. I wouldn't expect an owner-pilot to pull out the stops with a passenger, especially a lawyer. Dan can do that hairy stuff when he's alone and feeling his oats if he wants. But I hoped for at least a few rolls, and I was rewarded when Dan took the ridge runner up to altitude and did a perfect rotation of the Mustang so that the centrifugal force of the roll exactly matched the gravity on my body, and I felt absolutely nothing except that I had the sensation of the world turning over above me. He did that maneuver a couple of times during the flight, and each time it was just as smooth. If I'd had a cup of coffee in my hand, the brew would have remained in the cup throughout those maneuvers. Later in the flight, he did a four-point roll, 90 degrees to starboard and then a quick stop for a few seconds, the Mustang seeming to stand on its right wing. Then 90 more degrees and another quick stop. The Mustang then upside down, and this time I was hanging from the shoulder harness. Then another 90 degrees and stop with the plane on its left wing, then back to level flight. I should mention that Dan thoughtfully and prudently provided a plastic barf bag for me. But I wouldn't need it. Just before takeoff, I had repeated what is known by military pilots the world over as the Alan Shepard Prayer. As he'd sat on top of a redstone rocket on May 5, 1961, about to become the first American in space, Shepard had said, Please, dear God, don't let me screw up. Uh, except Alan Shepard didn't say screw up. When we reached the coast around Watsonville, Dan passed down over the beach and, just beyond the surf line, banked Ridge Runner north toward Santa Cruz and throttled up. We were lower now and doing about 300 miles an hour. Persons on the beach were, I think, impressed. Hey, I was impressed. Then we turned to go back to Hollister, threading our way east over the arroyas and the ridges of the Santa Cruz Mountains and Dan Martin made the Mustang dance. He'd put the plane alternately standing on its wing, poured and starboard, the hills to the left, then to the right. Ridge running indeed. When an aircraft is maneuvering that way, wings perpendicular to the ground, there's no lift from the wing's airfoil. The plane can remain aloft only if the engine is powerful enough literally to pull the plane through the air. In this case, six tons of airplane. Oh, mighty Merlin. The passage took only a few minutes, with me shouting, All right! and other more earthy expletives, not all of them communicated to the pilot, 
I didn't want him to think I was having a seizure. We came back into the pattern at Hollister Airport. I thought we were just going to drop the wheels and land. But Dan kept the landing gear up and buzzed the runway at speed, and then he threw the Mustang into a chandelle, a hard port turn and climb, trading speed for altitude, and then dropping the landing gear. Actually, more like throwing the gear out with the force of the turn. And we cruised back to another more gentle turn port and a silky touchdown. There were family and other spectators watching us taxi in and waving. I pumped my arms and got just a tad misty-eyed. When the propeller stopped and I climbed out of the cockpit and slid off the wing, my niece thankfully kept me standing. By God, I'd finally flown in a Mustang. And what memory of the morning is most etched in my mind? Oh, my listeners, it happened on the way out to the ocean a few minutes after takeoff. We were low over the hills, over a patch with only grass and no trees. The sun was directly above us, and Dan put the Mustang on its starboard side, and I looked down and saw a hard-edged shadow of the ridge runner speeding over the hills in formation with us, the unmistakable silhouette of the P-51, the canopy, the pilot, the passenger. There I was at last. I waved to myself. Now, back home, that dumb photo of me in helmet and goggles is paired with a new photo of me in the backseat of the Ridge Runner. And the photos frame something I bought a couple of weeks after the flight. A small, exquisitely detailed die-cast model of Major Pierce McKinnon's Mustang, Ridge Runner III, Dan Martin's Mustang, my Mustang. I touched it. I touched it. I felt its heat. I tasted it in my mouth. Jim, try not to think so much. That was Jim Ashford reading Ridge Runner. As we heard early in life, Jim fell in love with all kinds of fighter planes and the heroes that flew them, especially the wily P-51 Mustang. He made models of planes, made a special effort to see planes in action, even had his picture taken in a simulated cockpit all decked out in a flight suit. But it wasn't until many years later that he finally got the thrill of a lifetime when he actually got a ride in a real P-51. Jim, thanks for that great story. Friends, Jim Ashford is a regular contributor to Volley Writers Read. He was born in Sanger and graduated from the University of California at Berkeley, where he received his law degree. He retired just a few years ago after having worked as an attorney for the California legislature for over 30 years. Nowadays, he does a lot of traveling, writes travel essays, and, of course, wonderful short stories. We want to thank Jim for his fine presentation tonight and hope that he'll have more for us in years to come. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for tuning in. 
If you ever want to listen to tonight's story or any of the other stories that we've broadcast this season, just go online to kvpr.org and link on to archived audio. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours our great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read.